Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. So today we're back in person after a few episodes of being on Zoom. And when we were on Zoom, we weren't really drinking together, except I was having some NyQuil maybe on the side as I was recovering. Are you suggesting we were drinking alone? (laughs) From COVID. (laughs) Yes, but we're back in person. Thankfully today, everyone's healthy again and we're able to have a beer together. So um, I had all different kinds of Michigan beer for Thanksgiving and I was able to bring a couple from Brewery Vivant today. So this, which is down in Grand Rapids, just a couple hours south of us. This is a rapid IPA in India Pale Ale and the description for this is it's a dry hopped uh, American style IPA with moderate bitterness, aromatic, balanced, delicious, made with passion and beer city, you would say, which is a nickname for Grand Rapids. So um, I don't know what you guys think, but for me, I drank some of this on Thanksgiving. It was helpful because it is it's a little more bitter than I would normally like. But the kind of Christmas of it was helping with all the heavy food I was eating on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, full disclosure, I'm not a huge um, IPA person. This one I actually do enjoy. The name is fitting rapid IPA because I, I want to rapidly drink it and get to a second one. <laughs> I was going to make that joke. No, come on. Yeah. That's the, really? It's not good for me. That means I'm entering like dad joke territory. <laughs> dad joke territory. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the dad side. No, I agree. This is very delicious and I don't usually do pale ales and I really like this one. Okay. So thanks uh, so much to Brewery Vivant for our beer today. Welcome to episode 19 of Breaking the Surface. Today, we are going to talk about two recent trials that were in the news. The one was Kyle Rittenhouse and the Kenosha shootings, and the other is Ahmad Arbery. And I don't know if you've been following these two trials, but uh, a lot of this discussions, especially with the Rittenhouse verdict afterwards, I think the Arbery verdict might have been a little more well-known with how that was going to end up based on the evidence was out there. But the interesting thing about the Arbery trial was how it even came to trial. And so um, we're just going to talk today about those two things. And Beth, I'm going to throw it to you first and get the discussion going. Sure. Well, we were just talking before we started recording and, and Taylor made a really good point that I think is important to note. We refer to these as the Rittenhouse and the Arbery trials. In one case, Rittenhouse was on trial. Arbery was actually the victim of a murder in his case. And so calling the Arbery trial can have some implications because he wasn't actually on trial, but it is, it is in colloquially in the media, how it's been referred to. So we'll refer to it that way, but I think it's an important distinction to note. So maybe we could talk about Rittenhouse first, because that was the first verdict that came, came back. Um, And I think most people will know these are two very well-known national cases, but just very quickly, um, Kyle Rittenhouse, this white teenager, had gone to this protest in Wisconsin, ended up killing two people and wounding a third, um, claiming self-defense as he was trying to protect some businesses during Black Lives Matter protests um, and said that these men had come after him and that's why he shot them. So 
both of these cases hinged on self-defense from the defense um, attorneys, um, but they went in different directions. And so with the Rittenhouse case, he was actually acquitted on every single charge. Um, There was some thought that maybe the jury would sort of settle as a compromise on some of like the carrying or weapons related charges. He was acquitted on every single um, charge. And I think what's what I just want to mention and maybe to start with, I want to get your guys' reaction to that verdict. But I think one of the things I, I was disappointed in it, I think it was I was expecting it um, for a few reasons. I think the judge and I have covered trials as a reporter. Um, I think the judge was quite biased in his handling of it. And a lot of his actions throughout the trial signaled to me that it maybe was not going to be a fair trial. He made a lot of decisions about what kind of evidence could be presented, how victims were referred to or not. Um, that really made it difficult for the prosecution. And so I already in there, you can read the think pieces that they're out there about his potential racial bias. I mean, he made racist comments about lunch. It was, it was very problematic. So I was already kind of set up to expect this verdict. The one thing I want to say before I ask you guys to, to share how you just emotionally reacted to it was that one thing I do know about court cases is that what you see in the media, they're often trying to condense, you know, days and days and days of testimony and evidence into a short, you know, couple paragraph story. And so with Kyle Rittenhouse, even though I'm profoundly disturbed by that case, I think it's important for the public to understand that juries are often instructed in very narrow legal parameters of what they come back with a verdict on. And so while it might not feel morally right, it often could be legally correct how mm-hmm. the jury arrived mm-hmm. at that decision. So it's an important distinction. It doesn't feel fair to us, but sometimes they are following literally the instructions. And you and I might have made the same decision that they did, seeing all the evidence that they did with the charges. So I just want to get your guys's, I guess, reaction generally to that case. Yeah, that's actually um, where I was going to go with this, too, is that legality doesn't necessarily equal morality. And I think that even the outcome of this case and what the jury had decided, it didn't necessarily change my opinion of Kyle Rittenhouse either. Um, I think it was very misguided action. I think he's a misguided young man that, although he is a young man and I I can't imagine, um, I guess as a 17, 18 year old having thought through, um, entirely his, what he did. And, um, with just such severe ramifications, such as taking people's lives is just, um, it's just a really unfortunate thing and sad thing that could have certainly been prevented. And so my opinion of Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't change now that he was, you know, shown to be not guilty. Um, but the courts determined the legality of his self-defense, um, actions. And so then my question was the morality that's involved to, to even show up armed, I think can still be questioned. So we can still have discussions about that. We can ask questions about the morality of his actions, even if those questions, uh, don't necessarily carry the weight that we might wish they would in court. So it was just, I think, pretty sad overall, Um, particularly, I guess, just because now we're seeing this almost squabbling and this rush to for certain uh, people to claim Kyle Rittenhouse and paint him as this type of hero. And so that's the that's the other thing that I'm finding, I think, incredibly confusing is people that are just willing to to hitch their wagon to somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse. And again, I I almost think that he's so young that he doesn't probably even fully understand like what is happening right now. What's interesting is that hitching the wagon is 
uh, becoming problematic. The stories that are coming out, for example, he's a big supporter of Black Lives Matter. And that class, one of the first stories I saw was he did an interview, I think, on Fox News and stressed he's a big supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. And I think that caught a lot of people by surprise who were kind of lionizing him. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing I've seen is he he started speaking out against his first attorney, which was Lynn Wood, I believe. Yeah. And Lynn Wood is very popular on the far right and Rittenhouse has some pretty unsettling things to say about Lynn Wood. The third thing is that the QAnon crowd is now starting to claim this was a false flag and that Rittenhouse was, he's just a pawn, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> They're actually, because he is not fitting the, uh, the mold that people were thinking like, because you did this, you must buy in with all these other peripheral things. He doesn't. And I'm really curious here in the next couple of weeks, what will happen he got invited to be a, a congressional aide or something like politicians were courting internships him. and mm -hmm. internships. Yeah. And, and I just wonder, he seems a little atypical when it comes to some of um, the things he leans toward. I, I agree with both of you about the legal side based on the narrow scope and the directions given to the jury. I wasn't surprised at all by the verdict. Something I've been thinking about is I saw a lot of posts on social media after the verdict of people going, I'll bet you hadn't heard all the details that came out in the trial from your media group. Like they had portrayed it in all, in all these horrible ways and you've been misled and everybody was lying to you and ah, get some. <laughs> and my thought was, no, I didn't experience that at all. Like, yeah. for example, I did, I never thought that the victims were black. Like one of the things I saw was you thought this was a white guy shooting black victims. No, I never thought that. I no, never like, saw that coverage in the news mm -hmm. immediately. Yeah. Um, and, and all these other things that kept rolling out, I kept looking at it and go, but I never thought that. Mm. And I, I try to read news widely from the left and the right. And yes, people can get stuff wrong, especially with the initial reporting and the flurry of gathering facts, but it usually works itself out. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there was opinion pieces I read. I mean, like the idea that there was a racial element from Rittenhouse had a lot to do with after, I believe it was after he made bail. He was seen somewhere in pictures with the Proud Boys. Yeah. Throwing oh. the sign, mm -hmm. up, the which sign. was one of the, just yep. to note that pieces of evidence the judge did not allow in the yeah. trial. Yeah, yeah. So that's not <laughs> a good look, right? Uh, and I think Rittenhouse has said later he didn't realize who he was with. Okay, I don't know if that's true or not. But, okay, so that's not a good look, even though no one was making the argument that he was there to shoot black people, for example. Mm. So that, that's been one of my frustrations is maybe realizing how much people live in a media bubble, bubble will they'll say things like, how come this organization never reported that? Oh, they did. You just mm -hmm. don't read that. And now you're being told by other people there's been a cover-up and there was no cover-up. The information was out mm -hmm. there all the time. I think that's what I'm finding really interesting about this case specifically is not the the action that was condensed to a couple minutes of you know him feeling threatened and then taking the lives of a couple of people. That I can see that. I can understand that. Um, but what's confusing me are the things like where he's posing with the proud boys. And so then you have some people who are scrambling to adopt him as like, yes, thank God he's mm -hmm. a white nationalist. And then other people are like, yeah, but he's just trolling. He's 18, 17 years old. He doesn't really he doesn't know what he's know. doing. Yep. Yep. And then going on Tucker Carlson, who I can't, I'm hard pressed to think of a more harmful media figure than Tucker Carlson, but, mm -hmm. um, to go on there and then say, well, I support black lives matter. So then you almost have like people who are maybe really trying to distance themselves from Kyle Rittenhouse and, and are now like, wait, is he woke now all of a sudden? Like what's going on? This is weird. <laughs> so that stuff is just really interesting because I think that it all plays a role in this, but it's not 
it's not something that you can examine too closely, like within the courts is just because he threw up the peace symbol. Does that change his actions? And Mm -hmm. it's not one of those things that you can really, I guess, assume. Yeah. I think for me, what's most problematic is what happened before and after the trial, not the trial itself. So like, again, you know, the jury probably reached a conclusion that they had to within the narrow legal parameters that they did. I think Stephen Colbert, the late night host had made a really salient point about this afterwards, which he had said, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said essentially to the fact like, okay, I can accept that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't break the law. If that is the case, the law needs to change. Mm -hmm. The law is, is flawed in some way. And what you alluded to earlier, Taylor of, you know, to have a kid equipped with an AR 15 show up in a very volatile situation with this sort of harebrained notion of protecting the community buildings or protecting local businesses or whatever it is. It raises so many questions about like the adults in his life and Mm -hmm. who is guiding him on that being a smart thing to do. Or thinking (laughs) I'll go in as a medic when, as far as I know, he He didn't have have medical training. And it sounds like he thought this would be a good idea. That seems super misguided. I think he's in nursing classes, but yeah, yes, he's yeah, not. Yeah. A, clearly, I mean, right. everyone's a medical expert mm-hmm. these days in yeah. the pandemic. But so there's that aspect of just like, why is why would you show up in a situation that is so likely to lead to trouble with a weapon when other people don't have weapons? And then the outcome is you're able to kill two people and claim self-defense. Like usually self-defense can be used as legal defense if you're, provoking a situation. And so there's, you know, again, you it can't be used. It as cannot. A yeah, so yeah. if you are a, provo- a provocateur of the situation, you're not supposed to claim self-defense. Now, of course, this, I think the case rested on whether he was really provoking trouble. He had a right to be there legally caring, mm. but I think there's a problem. The biggest issue that I don't feel like enough people are covering. And I, it sounds like you have both of you have already flagged it in your head. That really bothers me is how this is being celebrated even if he's legally off the hook, I don't understand why the situation is something that we would want to hold up as um, an example that other young people should follow. So, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, being the troll that she is, suggesting that he get a Congressional Medal of Honor, which has gone to like Gandhi and Mother Teresa, right? You have the Matt Gateses of the world mm-hmm. offering the internships, all of this stuff. Tucker Carlson, he took a photo with Trump. So his politics are problematic, but he is a teenager. So his mm. brain is still developing. <laughs> but I just, I, I, I'm so hard pressed to like, if you're a conservative parent to say, this is an example of what you should look at. These are actions we could celebrate. If anything, we could say, this was a hugely tragic situation. What are the lessons we can take away from this? How does he learn? But I'm just trying to think about what his life is going to be like from here. Yeah. He's already being misused and used by politicians and media personalities like Tucker Carlson, probably willingly. It's a lot to thrust a kid like that into the national spotlight. But I just, I worry, like I could see him running for office in two years, any mm. sort of misguided thing you can think. And I just think his morality for the rest of the life, his life must be so warped by this experience of like, what is right and wrong? Him being celebrated for this action mm-hmm. instead of taking it to heart and being chastised mm-hmm. by my, or learning. I don't know. I just, I feel it's the way it's being handled afterwards is really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because I keep mentioning like how young he is and I hope this isn't like, taken as my support for him or anything like that. But here is someone who was, was um, shown to be not guilty and now has this entire life ahead of him to, to try to 
make something of himself or do something good. And this is a hugely pivotal thing, event that happened in his life. And I think it's okay to be unhappy with the actions, but still hope that he, yeah, isn't just this eternal poster boy for right. people who are just looking to lionize negative actions and killing and, and all these things. Um, that's what I hope for him is that before he's even like truly an adult, I mean, he's barely 18 years old that he's not just being used as a pawn in those ways. And that, that his future isn't just that, I guess. I, I was thinking along those lines too, that if my 17 year old said, Hey, I'm going to go to a riot scene, see what I can do to keep people safe and be a medic. I'd be like, Oh no, you're not. You're 17. Yeah. Like there's with other, a semi-automatic semi weapon is even worse. <laughs> And so I, I've never thought of him as a devious person with some type of devious intent. I just think he was terribly misguided, tragically, tragically misguided. And the idea that this could be lionized into something that's seen as heroic um, bothers me. And so speaking along those lines, let's do a little timeline quick of what happened, because my understanding of him being quitted is that he was not a provocateur. Someone else did provoke him, clearly did, and he responded to that. Those were the only killings in all of the Kenosha riots. So for one, he's taking uh, this weapon into a place where no life has been lost up to this point. Mm -hmm. it, it feels like, um, it feels like too much. Like you wouldn't have needed that. He was at the car dealership, could have left the weapon there to be a medic and just gone in there. Cause there was no reason to believe that your life would have been in danger. So here he is too, as a, as a white 17 year old going into a crowd of rioters that was clearly both white, black, et cetera. He wouldn't have stood out for any reason. If he'd have just gone in there without a weapon on his back, he'd have been another person on the street. Uh, I still would have thought it as foolish of being there, but, but just would have been a guy. As I understand it from the witnesses, cause you can't interview the people who died. Somebody fired a shot in the air and that person was very close to Kyle. And the first victim turns and sees Kyle there and apparently assumes he had shot his weapon. The potential mass shooter. Potential mass shooter. Mm -hmm. So goes after him and gets really aggressive, obviously. I think tries to take his gun. Um, Rittenhouse testifies that he felt like the guy was going to take his gun and kill him. So he shoots the guy. Okay. In the narrow scope of things, Rittenhouse was not there to pick a fight as far as we understand. He didn't shoot the shot. The guy attacks him. Okay, but here's my dilemma. This is where it really kicks in. The other two people that came after him, suddenly he's the shooter. Mm -hmm. And he's the only shooter of some of another person that's been in Kenosha. And if you're a person who even simply has your back to the action and you hear shots fired and you turn around and you see him with his weapon, suddenly this is on the verge of becoming a mass shooting event and you think you need to do something. So that one guy comes in and kicks him. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some really terrible memes. I don't think that guy has been identified, but like, well, of course you would fire in self-defense when you're attacked like this. No, that guy thought he was taking down a shooter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is something normally celebrated that's, in conservative right. circles. <laughs> the, the guy, guy with the, the skateboard <laughs> thought he was attacking an, an active shooter. Yeah. Um, same with the, the guy who was shot through the bicep, who actually was a medic, I think, and who had a pistol and he had concealed it, but he pulled it because he thought he was confronting someone who was an active shooter. Mm -hmm. And so I, after that first one, all of those, while you can still make the argument, narrowly speaking, and I think that's technically, technically correct. The Rittenhouse was still defending himself. Um, that gun should never have been there. And, and that's part of the problem I have with the whole thing is 
going back to what Colbert said, how do, how do we have a conversation about, even in a country where we are free to carry weapons openly, there's got to be a way in which we form some type of social contract, a minimum, an informal social contract that says, if there, don't take your weapon here. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that I, I feel like is a separate discussion because I, I don't know that it should have been damning in a legal sense to Rittenhouse, though I do wonder if there will be civil cases that come up. But that's the thing that makes no sense to me. And, and so to take it even further, the second and third person that he shot, had they shot and killed him, they would have made the same defense he made on the stand mm-hmm. and they would have been correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And so suddenly you're going, any of them who won that fight were correct. That seems weird. Yeah. Like just that whole idea of introducing the gun into the situation created a scenario that never would have happened. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's kind of what you're saying to Taylor is how do we discuss that? Yeah. I, I think that I'm not to say that there shouldn't be certain convictions and times when, when people might feel compelled to, there's something happening here. I need to go. If you're going to truly do good. And I guess that's always the question is, are you actually doing good in the larger scope of things mm-hmm. or not? He thought that he would do some good yeah, while he yeah. was there. He was wrong. Um, but this whole idea, and I'm someone that owns guns. I'm like pro second amendment. I'm not pro NRA, but I'm pro second amendment is that here you have these people who are entering situations where they're telling you, I only feel safe if I'm armed, you know, where else you would feel safe? Not there. So don't go. (laughs) It makes, it just doesn't make any sense. I am so scared for my life when I enter these situations that I need to be armed. Okay. How about you don't go and your gun can stay in its closet and, and no one will die. And so those are the things that I think just really bother me. And I mean, we talk about, we go back again to his photo opportunities in the bar and different things like that. People are really trying to figure out how to categorize Kyle Rittenhouse in order to further, I think their agenda or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And is that as you're looking at this, it, it can just, it, it should be requiring so much nuance is that he was in that Wisconsin bar with his mom. You can legally drink at 18, I think in the bars, if you're with a parent. So there he is drinking a couple of beers with his mom shortly after he was out on, I think bail. Right. And so then he takes these photo opportunities. People are, are starting to pressure him into to snapping these photos and it's not a great look. Where is that parental guidance? Because oftentimes, especially in conservative circles, we are so quick to point to things like gang violence in Chicago uh, as if there were just parental figures in those people's lives, crime would drop. Okay, where were his parents and why can we never talk about those things when it's a white person? I don't I don't understand that. No, it's a, it's a great, it's a great point. And to me, like both of these cases, but especially the Rittenhouse case, like really is a confluence of two things that are problematic, which is our gun culture in general. We've done a whole episode on that before folks can go back and listen to that. I think we had a really good discussion about that, but this is, I mean, like clearly like this idea of the good guy with a gun, this situation shows exactly why that doesn't work. I mean, I feel nervous in general with someone parading around with an AR-15 around me, even if it's holstered or they're not just the, we, and we talked about why on that show, but just the thinking of needing to display that in public makes a lot of people uncomfortable about your stability as an individual while you're, what you're doing there. It's fair to, to worry about that given how many mass shootings we have in the country. But yeah, once you have violence starting to unfold a shot, whatever people now 
we have mass shooting images in our heads so much. I think many of us is not uncommon. If you go into a festival or somewhere, you sometimes think in the back of your head, what would I do? Mm -hmm. How would I exit if something happened mm -hmm. here? So people are kind of geared towards knowing that this could happen. And if you have a gun go off and you turn around, you've got multiple people now, like Anthony was saying, starting to draw weapons. No one knows. <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't work. The good guy with a gun thing doesn't work. I think what does, and we talked about this on the show before with your experiences, especially Taylor, um, being a social worker before, but the presence of weapons just makes it more likely that those weapons mm -hmm. will be used, that violence will unfold. So you have that combined with our kind of stand your ground self-defense laws in this country, which are so problematic. They range from state to state. We don't have really clear federal legislation about this, which maybe is why there's a different result in Georgia than Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. But these stand your ground laws, I mean, really give a broad leeway to someone with a gun to take an extreme measure and sort of try to successfully argue. And maybe this will transition us in talking about Arbery, but in both the Rittenhouse and Arbery cases, the, de the defense was made that <clears throat> the person holding the gun, who, by the way, should be the person who feels most secure in that transaction. Yes. Uh, the person who doesn't have a gun is probably freaking out. In both cases, the, the people without guns went to take the guns away, which is a normal thing that you might do if you're threatened with a gun to try to neutralize that threat. And the self-defense argument says, I was worried they were going to take away my gun to shoot me. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you can claim self-defense, even though you're the one with the weapon, if you think they're going to turn the weapon around on you, which is such a crazy convoluted logic that mm -hmm. I can't mm -hmm. understand it, but it is literally written into our legal code in so many states. Um, final thought on Rittenhouse before we go to Arbery. I've also heard the argument from people that it was appropriate for him to be there because the police weren't doing their job. I've, I've had quite a conversation with some people about this. And I got to tell you, that concerns me a little bit because I, it's as if we now have permission to look at a situation and go, because I don't like how the police are handling it, I'm going to need to take these matters into my own hands. And it, there's a difference between if, if I'm at home and someone's attacking my house and the police can't get there in time, okay, they can't get there in time. But I, I'm making an assumption here that I think is a fair assumption. Um, law enforcement agencies have studied for a long, long time about the dynamics of crowds, especially when it comes to whether it's um, everything from protests to riots, you name it. They've studied this and they understand you're going to have to handle different situations different ways. And what does it look like to have a law enforcement present that de-escalates things versus might escalate things? Is it only property being destroyed or are people's lives at stake? Uh, all kinds of questions that go into this. I would assume there's something of a science to this. And it's not just something that we study in the United States, but it's studied all over the world. Kenosha made the decision to be pretty hands-off, and I believe just kind of form a, a um, perimeter around certain places. And I, and I suspect it's partly because there had not been any loss of life at that point. It hadn't escalated, and they had made a decision to handle it a particular way. And suddenly you have individuals going, I don't believe that all the people in the thin blue line were smart enough or had enough integrity to figure out how to respond to this well, but I've got this. Mm -hmm. And that bothers me. Um, and, and it's not as if institutions are perfect. We know that's not the case. And obviously politics comes into situations. I understand all of that. But at the end of the day, if you're asking me, who do I trust more to figure out how to handle this? Do I trust professionals who have done this at times for decades and have studied this for perhaps centuries 
uh, just in terms of law enforcement in general, and have a pretty good idea of what it looks like to try to handle crowd dynamics here. I'm going with people who have been doing this as a profession rather than someone who looks at a situation from 15 miles away and goes, I could do better than the police. I do want to add too, because I, this is the last note I had to make about Rittenhouse, but just on the police front, you know, there was pretty infamously a police officer who had given Kyle Rittenhouse a bottle of water and said, thank you guys for being here. So that also <laughs> complicates things. I think there's a really complicated, obviously, history in our country with the police anyways and how they interact with all of these situations. And in both cases, you had sort of men who were teenagers and in, in the case of Rittenhouse, but people who thought they had the right to act as a law enforcement themselves. Mm -hmm. And that will certainly be the Arbery case, which we'll talk about in a second. But it does not help that in both situations, there was some reinforcement of that idea mm. of being correct from law enforcement. Yeah. So that's a problem. Do you think that's because he had a gun or because they thought he was acting as a medic? I mean, I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't want to speak to that context because I don't know. He certainly was openly carrying that yeah. gun. And I think there is video of that moment with the police from body cam footage. I, I feel like I've seen video of them saying, thank you guys for being here and giving them waters. Yeah, that would mm -hmm. just seem weird because if just, did they say that to every person who walked past their perimeter? Or oh. I I think the, impl the implication of the context that I have heard reported is it was, you know, specifically, I think because they were carrying weapons, like these guys were sort of helping back up security yeah, for the okay. police. I'd be interested. I haven't looked that up. I'd be interested to hear more about that. But yeah, I think those are the some of the context that we're missing, we can make assumptions about it, but I was going to mention the same exact thing. It's just how eerie to me that scene was where you have these police officers offering water and saying, thank you for being here. And then, you know, moments later, there's a couple of people that are dead. And so I've, I've spoken quite a bit about, I think the state of policing in this country and no, I'm not a defund the police person, but I think that there's definite changes that need to be made. And one of my fears, and this is because I have police officers in my life, and some of them I think have responded to the media attention um, in an honorable way and others not so much. And the not so much crowd is where they're saying that they're only going to be effective or even willing to do their job if they feel empowered and if they feel supported. And to me, I just feel like that is so far from why people should be police officers yeah. is that I'm only going to serve the public if you support me. And I think that it should just be, I'm going to do good regardless. And isn't, aren't those the types of people that we most want? And so, um, that whole thought was kind of brought back to me from that scene of thank you for being here. We are surrounded by people who hate cops. And so I'm glad that you're here with an AR 15 strapped to your back and are at least showing me a little bit of support. And I there are assumptions within that, but that's just what it brought to mind. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I did just because I am good at really fact checking myself really quickly, <laughs> but I did. So that, that video is true. Mm -hmm. There is, there is video of that interaction and the uh, Kenosha County Sheriff, David Beth actually distanced the department from that. They had a mm -hmm. hard time identifying. It is clearly a police vehicle in it and it's clearly their department, but he, all they said was thank you guys for being here to this group, gave them waters. And he said, that's not the message we want to send mm -hmm. to these guys. So they, okay. they clearly yeah. felt the context was supportive of Rittenhouse mm -hmm. okay. with weapons. Gotcha. So. Excellent. Well, should we head into discussion about the next trial? So this is, um, Ahmaud Arbery. What have you guys made of this? 
So, <laughs> yeah, um, this was one coming on the heels of Rittenhouse that I felt that the case, I think Anthony said earlier, I, I felt the case was overwhelming, but I was so nervous about what the verdict was going to be. I just felt like if it did not come back guilty, then I would just I would have been utterly devastated. I just would have yep. thought our system is beyond mm-hmm. repair. I like agree. it is irreparably broken because to me, not just from even the racial implications, but again, having had some experience covering trials, just the over the evidence seemed overwhelming. So again, quickly people know these facts, but Ahmad Arbery, black 25 year old jogging in a neighborhood, um, is, uh, suspected by this father, son duo, white father, son duo of running away from some crime scene on nothing more than just an assumption that he was doing something wrong. They chase him down with a truck neighbor joins them. They confront him. There's a violent uh, altercation. He's trying to wrestle the gun away. He's shot with a shotgun and one of the men is recording it as it happens. So that's what happened. Um, this is another case where self-defense came into play. Um, the men claim that they were trying to make a citizen's arrest, which does have legal context in Georgia. People can stop someone if they s- suspect. And they're again, the language of this became important in the case. But if they have direct knowledge of um, evidence, um, there has to be, you know, you can't just think someone might be doing something wrong. You have to have seen it or known or have some sort of direct implication that this person is doing wrong. And then you can potentially detain them until the police arrive. So that was an argument that they were being made. I think what what was interesting to me is the racial implications of this case. Obviously, I mean, to have a black man being chased down in a truck and killed in the Deep South has a lot of uh, Jim Crow era lynching um, imagery for a lot of people. It's very troubling. It was a mostly white jury, and I think there were the two things I just wanted to mention about this were one, what the prosecution decided to do as an approach was successful, which is she did not focus on race. So she made a strategic decision with like, again, I think everybody, but one person was white on this jury uh, to not focus on race in, in any of her comments. There were sometimes subtext of it. Like she would say, these men made assumptions about Ahmaud Aubrey. There's a racial assumption there. I think that she was trying to hint at, Mm -hmm. but she was allowed to present evidence at the trial. Like the fact that they had a Confederate flag decorative license plate on their truck that she never introduced and did not hit on. And there was an interesting, if you listen to the New York times, the daily podcast, they had an interesting analysis of this today, but the thinking was one that that plate is very common in Georgia. A lot of people like the old battle flag Mm. plate and with an all white jury, they had to ask the question, how many of these people might have this license plate themselves or know people who have this license plate. Mm, This might not be a smart thing to do, but also it seemed to be that she felt that the case had strong enough merits of just what they did was wrong in murder, regardless of the skin color of the people involved. And the jurors can draw their own decisions about the racial implications of it. And she was clearly successful in doing that. Whether she had to be or should have been more interested in the racial dynamics is a different conversation, but she wasn't. The other thing I'll mention that I want to get your guys' take is the defense. Um, The defense did go for race in a way that I think was really horrifyingly racist to a lot of people Mm -hmm. who covered the trial. So her closing remarks, she really tried to paint the portrait of Ahmaud Arbery as being a neighborhood intruder who had been there many times didn't belong, um, really tried to kind of hit that. Why was this black man in this white neighborhood thing? And then described his physical appearance and said, 
He's not the victim that he has been portrayed here in this trial. He showed up in this neighborhood in khaki shorts and no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. That phrase hit people so hard because it it made him seem like an animal. It made mm-hmm. him seem less than human. His mother, who had sat through autopsy photos of her son, who had sat through multiple videos of her son being killed, got up and walked out of the courtroom during that description because it was so offensive and racist to her that she couldn't stand it. When I heard that, I could not believe how overtly that description was being used to sort of paint him that way. Mm -hmm. It was not successful, but it does to me show kind of the state of the country in that case. Um, So sorry, I had some thoughts about that, but I want to get your guys' impressions of that. That, That's where I went to is just um, for people who don't have an understanding of under the history of racism in this country and the language of, you know, animalistic imagery that white people will try to capitalize on is what, what that um, attorney was trying to do is paint this not as three men in a truck chasing down another human and killing him in cold blood. No, these were three protectors of the neighborhood that were chasing down the equivalent of an animal. And that has been um, shown for hundreds of years. That type of language is, uh, oftentimes referred to as a dog whistle and mm-hmm. dog whistles, um, are meant to not be like totally obvious necessarily. Not everyone will hear, them. Not everyone will hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily I think that as people become more aware of how, how devastating this language can be in its historical context, uh, we all, we, we are understanding that like, oh, maybe I should know that that's a dog whistle rather than just passing it by. And so, um, the reason that, her use of, you know, covering up his long, dirty toenails um, blew up so much is because I think we do as a culture and as a society have a greater understanding of how um, impactful negative words like that can be and their place in history. And so that's that was just to me reminiscent of things that have been present for hundreds of years and things that the black community has been trying to tell us for a very long time is present. And so to have someone who is in a professional position, such as an attorney, feel that comfortable using terms like that in a court of law is just, you said, um, had this gone the other direction, we would have felt that our system was irreparably broken. And maybe it's not irreparably, but irre- wow, that's a tough one, irreparably <laughs> broken. Um, but it still feels darn close, mm-hmm. like for someone to be that comfortable. And this was nothing short of just a modern day lynching. We think that lynchings are things of the past. They're not. And I don't know why I need to be saying this when we've had people from the black community saying these things for hundreds of years. But I just want people to have an understanding of that, that this isn't just a new thing where someone was using some bad uh, imagery to describe a person in order to make their defense sound more appealing. No, this is this is old tactics. Old. Can I ask Anthony a question? So I'm curious. Wait, do I have a choice? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. So exactly what you were saying. So, to, so what, you know, one of the founding principles of the Ku Klux Klan was this idea that there needed to be proactive white vigilantes to protect white communities because black people by their very presence pose such a threat and were so likely to commit crimes and all the racist ideas of the post-Civil War era. So that's like what they were, you know, they were proudly parading around trying to just protect innocent white families from black intruders. Mm-hmm. So my question for Anthony is just, I'm just curious because you've been, I know you've been doing so much reading about the racist history of the country recently did any of what you 
have read so far resonate with this trial with you? Uh, oh, first of all, that's how militias started, by the mm, way. Okay. Um, it was after the slaves were freed. And um, one of the concerns was that the white population would not be able to keep control over the now free black population. And the story was out there that they would be violent and dangerous, you name it. So uh, this is where the start of, it's not to suggest that's why militias today exist, but um, militias earlier, you got permission for the militias to carry the guns because you needed to have them there to enforce that uh, separation between the two. It's more complicated than that, but that's very brief. Um, yes, it, it feels very Jim Crowy. Like people looked, I mean, vigilantes was a great example. And I think the example you gave Taylor, um, it, it fits that you have a couple of people who see a black person in the community and think, I will bring some type of justice to this situation. And, and granted, perhaps they were trying to get him into the system, but I want to back up just a little bit with a couple of things that make me look at it this way. I listened to a fairly in-depth podcast by a journalist after that video had come out and the guys had been arrested. And they were talking about this house that was being built that he was apparently um, stopping and browsing through. I remember when I listened to that episode, I said to my wife, cause I've been in construction work most of my life part time. Mm-hmm. I browse in houses that are being built all the time. Like if we were walking down the street in our neighborhood and there was a house under construction, I absolutely walked in. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing to stop you. They're I was flux. They're not. Right. Yeah. I was curious how it was built. I liked watching how it progressed. I would walk all around it and, uh, I don't know if that looked creepy to people or not in hindsight, but to me, that was a very normal thing. And there is video from that house where apparently a number of people were stopping in, hmm. both black and white. So for whatever reason, they decided that Ahmad Arbery looked like a guy that they were concerned was stealing things, right? The problem is the local police department never got any reports of theft. So let's just say these guys did think that he had been stealing things. What would you think uh, an average person would do? You would go to the police and you'd say, I've got video footage here of a guy who took stuff from the house. Why don't you go see if you can catch this guy? But for some reason, they were of the mindset that that was not the good idea. The good idea was we will go get him and we will make a citizen's arrest. And as you probably know from reading the stories, as it escalated, there was clearly racially charged language being used. Um, I, uh, it, it is such a heartbreaking story. I don't know if you've seen the video that was taken. Um, I just got chills when I watched it, like that sense of inevitability and of things that didn't have to happen, but no, it felt very much to me like we'll do this off the books. Um, we can, we'll deal with this. And so this is where I, f- I see a tie in with what happened in Ferguson. Also, it's this idea that I'm not going to go through the proper channels of existing law enforcement to try to get a problem solved. So even with Ferguson, you could argue if you didn't think the police were doing a good job, then you go vote in the next election for a new police chief. You there's all kinds of ways you can address it within the system, but you, but people see very comfortable in both these cases, very quickly reaching the decision. I, I won't go through the channels of law enforcement. I've got this. And with the Ahmad Arbery case, man, I'll tell you what, it sure feels like they targeted a young black man and yes, I, I could see why the black community, this would push every button from 
you know, 200 years of history here in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's like that entitlement aspect to it. That entitlement yes. of like, I'm going to substitute my judgment yeah. for law enforcement's judgment. And I absolutely am the heroic right person to serve in this role yeah. at this time. No one else can do it the way I can in this situation right now. I'm the one who needs to bring this change. It's an entitlement. Like I, I don't understand, particularly because that, community, I'm, I'm sort of implying like a conservative community here often is like the ones who have the thin blue line posters up and are talking about how they stand behind police officers and stuff. But it's like, apparently not yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> because, right. or, or maybe it's just a, you know, a boyish juvenile wanting to be a kind of cowboy police officer without having to, you know, do all the training and ethical things yeah. you need to do to do that. You know what I think it is, Beth? I, I think it is a way of saying I support the system when I think the system supports me. Hmm. So all thin blue line until I don't think the police are doing their job. Well, now I'll go do it for you guys. Right. Or you, so the hubris of being like, I could do that the, too. That's right. Right. <laughs> or you'll look at the court system. And if you like the outcome of a decision, you'll go trust the court system. They'll figure it out. And if you don't, you'll go, the court system is terrible. We're going to need to figure this out on our own. It's, it's a very pick and choose kind of mentality. And I honestly feel like because the world is complex, this is why I'm reluctant to throw out those big slogans because um, law enforcement does many things right and does things wrong. I mean, both of those things are true. The justice system, t- sometimes it works like it's supposed to, and sometimes it doesn't. And I, I think what might bother me more than anything else is I'd, I'd like to know what the what the reasons are that that we do, and I would include myself in this, pick and choose where we're supportive, but then also what leads us to go, okay, at this point, I now feel justified in taking an action to do the job of someone else that I don't think they're doing, even if in both of these cases, there's a potential for significant violence or lives are on the line. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the sense of entitlement and what's always interesting about things like this is the lack of surprise from the black community and and what's taken place. They say, yeah, he was out for a run. And that's something that, you know, most white people feel like they can do at any point. And it's something that they have to second guess. So whether they're going to go out and and do those activities, you know, they can, but it's always in the back of their mind. What happens if I do this? I've wandered around construction sites too. Never have I had to fear for my life. And then you talk to members of the black community and they're like, yeah, of course, like, of course that happened. Someone you know thought he looked suspicious. And so they got to make a decision where they decided to, to kill him. And if you watch that video, it's, I think one of the most outside of the George Floyd video, one of the most disturbing videos of all of them that I've seen, because here's a individual who is outnumbered, outgunned Mm -hmm. and is stuck in that survival mode of like, do I run or do I fight? Mm -hmm. And when you're in flux like that, um, that's just what I was seeing where he, he almost half-heartedly looked like he wanted to run, but also thought his best chance might be to try to, to like, try to get a gun from one of these people. Well, and why would you give in? Why would you have reason to believe they right. were going to take you to the police? Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of yeah. Yeah, yeah, somewhere else or somewhere harmful. I, I just have to note that this weird predilection for wandering around construction sites, I think is a male thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I have never done this as a woman. Oh, my wife enjoys it too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Then I won't gender yeah, it, but yeah. I just, I, I have never done that before, but I'm interested that some people have you done Try it sometime. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe I will now. <laughs> okay, so here's another thing, Taylor. I have jogged in khaki shorts before, mm-hmm. more than once. Didn't think twice about it. 
they were comfortable. Yeah. I went out on a jog. I never thought that someone might think I was running away from something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because yep. your and, cargo pockets can hold stuff. Yeah. You know, people. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, Taylor. Like, I think sometimes, you know, it, it's like a privilege to be outraged about this. And when I talk to black people, I try to remember this because they're so often you're right. They're not shocked. And actually white people shock is annoying to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, like, yes, of course, this is like, this is happening all the time. This yeah. is what we've been trying to tell you we're dealing with all the time. So to feel outraged now and like, Oh, I didn't know our country could be like this or our justice system could be like this. When black people have been saying all along, this is what it's like makes me, you know, try to be more careful about the language. But I think, you know, she, the prosecutor in the Ahmad Arbery case at one point in her closing remarks said, you know, are any of you joggers, like, what would you do if you're jogging? And this struck me as a woman. And it just made me think about the case differently. I have been out jogging before and felt like someone was too close to me on the road or was maybe driving too slow and following me. And like, as a woman, you're just always in your head, like, am I okay here? Are there people mm -hmm. around? Like you always have to think about that in a way that men don't have to think about when they're mm -hmm. jogging a lot of the times. And I was like, I would be absolutely terrified if a car just pulled up next to me and some men started screaming at me or like tried to, you know, run me off the road or whatever. Like, of course. Mm -hmm. And then you add that it's a black guy, three white men with guns. I just, I mean, you're right. The video is so tragic because it's so terrifying. Like, I don't know what he, yeah. he should. It's not that he could have done anything right. There wasn't a right way for him to respond to that situation. There was just a survival mode, but there was no, it felt like there was no path he could have taken out of that situation that, mm -hmm. that would have helped him, yeah. um, which is the hardest thing. The other last thing I want to touch on maybe as we wrap up the show here. Oh, wait, I have one more thing. Oh yeah, go. So okay. let me go. So you can have the last word. Okay. It won't necessarily have to be the last word. It's the last <laughs> yeah. thing I want to talk about, but go ahead. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> My one other thought with both these cases is that I feel like as a culture, we need to have more serious discussion about the value of property over the value of people. Mm. Mm. Because in both of these stories, so Kenosha, nobody had died. Yeah. Yes, property was being destroyed. And I would hope that in that town, they're looking at video footage and gathering witnesses and arresting people who were doing the rioting and looting. So this is not to suggest that ought to be overlooked as okay. I think that was bad too. But at the end of the day, if someone loses cars at a car dealership, this guy lost a lot. They're insured. They're, he's going to get his money back. Nobody was hurt. It is property. And it's, it, I get it. It's, there's a lot of upheaval. It's devastating. There's all kinds of things that follow from it, but it's things. Same with Ahmaud Arbery. Let's say he stole, I don't know what he would have fit in his pockets. Nails, a small hammer. <laughs> right, yeah. Like you don't kill somebody over things like that. Hmm. The only possible scenario I could think is, an example, like I'm living in the wild west and I've got a harvest that's going to come in of something that's going to feed my family through a long, cold winter. And somebody's getting ready to start it on fire because they hate me. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can make an argument there that actually they're going to take my whole, all of my family's lives if that property is destroyed because there's that direct correlation. That was not happening in either of these stories. And so this goes back to the moral versus legal, like, I, it is so hard for me to envision that I would consider lethal force against someone who is harming property that at the end of the day, um, I can regain that property. I can be reimbursed for it. Or frankly, even if I can't, I'll still be okay. Mm -hmm. I just don't see how there's justification for that. And I really wish, maybe I'll hit this next semester with my ethics class, <laughs> more discussion about thinking through ahead of time. What are the things that I am willing to take someone's life over 
mean, if someone would come into my driveway right now and I'd see them stealing my car, I'd tell them to stop. Well, it depends which car. Um, <laughs> if, it's, take it, take it. Uh, if it's the nice car, I'd be like, stop, don't do it. But honestly, at the end of the day, if they take off with it, it's just a car. Even if I could use lethal force to stop them, I don't know why I would. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially for me speaking now as a pastor, like this is the person that I, I would like to have a relationship with, talk about faith and all those types of things. And, and killing them stops that opportunity. Jesus loves you. That's right. (laughs) I'm a little angry, but Jesus is okay with you. Um, (laughs) uh, Right. So I I don't know. That's been sitting in the back of my mind Mm -hmm. on these is just this idea that things are things and people are people. And we have got to figure out how to value people over things. So, all right. No, that's a really beautiful idea to think about. Cause I think so much like the stand your ground stuff is just like, it's not really thought through. Like, what does that mean? Are you standing your ground to protect yourself or your family from the possibility of death? Like, you know, an armed invader who might actually hurt you or your loved ones or a stand your ground. Just anytime someone accidentally crosses your property line, you have a right to shoot them in the head. You know, like to your point of like, what are we valuing? What are we protecting is really important. And I don't think people do have enough conversation about it. Cause I think now a lot of people gun owners heads are right. I just have the right to protect it all with lethal force. If you're on my property in any way, that's standard ground. I can protect all of it. And it's like, should we put the same emphasis on protecting a house plant or a window from being broken as your wife or your children or whatever? Um, The other thing I just wanted to mention and, and get your thoughts on as we close here is just, I think, you know, the takeaway from these cases is to me a bigger question of like, what is justice in this country? And I think, even though justice was served in the, well, I've heard there was a good social media meme going around talking about justice would be Ahmad Aubrey being alive. What happened was accountability in the trial. And I think that's a good distinction. Um, but even so, even justice, accountability, whatever you want to count it, call it, it almost did not happen. And that was the same thing in the George Floyd case. And that's the same thing in so many cases in this country is that the late emergence of video is the thing that the entire trial hinged on. And if we didn't have it, I think those men would be free. I think Derek Chauvin and did I say his last name right? Chauvin. Chauvin. Thank you. And the, the three men in Georgia would be free. And the irony of the Ahmaud Arbery case is one, if you ever just go and read about the full case, there were so many instances of conflicts of interest and corruption that happened at the beginning of the case. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole reason that this guy, one of the guys felt comfortable chasing Ahmad Aubrey was because he had been an investigator in the prosecuting attorney's office for many, many years. So he did probably have that entitled sense of like, I know when someone's doing something wrong and mm-hmm. I've been an investigator, so I can go investigate. He immediately called that prosecutor, his former boss for advice. As soon as this case had happened, she is now um, being indicted for perjury and for other, uh, potential conflicts of interest that she had hid will this happen. But like when you just follow the case, like, and again, this is stuff that I've had to cover here just on a smaller local level, but like so many times I was reading it, I was like, Oh my gosh, like how did they not disclose that? Or that's a clear conflict of interest. Or like, how did the state AG not know this? Like so many steps in the process where bad advice was being given, legal procedures were not being followed. So already there was a potential for justice not to be served and then the only reason this really happened was one of the men themselves 
leaked the video to a local radio station. <laughs> so this video had been viewed by many people in law enforcement and these law enforcement people had told who, again, many who had conflicts of interest told these guys, Oh yeah, this exonerates you like this. I don't see anything that's worth being arrested. I mean, keep in mind, these men were not arrested for several months after this mm-hmm. murder happened. 60, 70 days. Yeah. So it's not like they were immediately taken into custody. Everyone told them, you know, this, yeah, it looks good to me. I don't see anything that would be, you know, you could be charged on here. And so they felt like there was, and I have to give a shout out to local journalists here because there was a very dogged local journalist who stayed on top of this along with Ahmad's family who really pushed for this and said, no, this isn't right. That eventually, because the rumors were spreading and, and pressure was intensifying, one of the men released the video to say, hey, Everyone who saw this, everybody settled down. <laughs> everyone who saw this yeah. thought it exonerated us. Here's what happened: it immediately, you know, blew up. The station eventually took it down off their website, but obviously the damage had been done. It circulated, and that was the reason that ultimately enough public pressure built for a case to be brought, and they were found guilty of murder. But that almost did not happen. And the that thin line between justice and injustice happens all over our country all the time especially for black people. And it shouldn't take a, a, a 19 year old standing and filming George Floyd's murder or anything else for that to happen. But it does happen every day. So what you said earlier, Taylor, what we're saying about the irreparable brokenness of our system, it is by a thread because justice in these cases is often just dangling by that little bit of yeah. evidence. Well, and this goes to what Taylor was saying earlier about the the closing arguments and the dog whistle language I read enough John Grisham books to, to know that juries are psychologically analyzed. Clearly, the defense thought this will resonate with the audience in front of me. And then I think of what you just said, Beth, that this video was shown to how many number of people in law enforcement and they said, nothing to see here. And then you recognize that is the culture in which mm-hmm. Ahmad Arbery was killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think about a conversation I had with a friend of mine who is black and he I was talking, this was last summer. So at the height of these discussions surrounding the police brutality cases and just asking him, I guess, kind of how he was doing. And you always have to tread lightly in those situations because you might have uh, black friends who have just been inundated with people asking them, Hey, how do I proceed here? And so then they're having to do homework for a bunch of white people, um, which isn't, isn't a great thing to have to ask. But um, he had said essentially like, living in, in two different realities or that there are two real two different realities that exist. There's a reality for someone like me. And then there's the reality for someone like him yet. He's friends with people like me. And so he has these, these friends that look like me that are you know, wondering like, and, and maybe flying thin blue line flags and all these different types of things. Well, he has aunts and uncles who were beaten by police for no reason in the sixties. And these are, he's, he's not far removed from those experiences within his own family. And, and he's also himself someone who has to uh, proceed through life in a much different way that I or his other white friends would have to. And so I think what I'm having to try to remind myself of is, is while I'm not going to necessarily be able to experience his reality, I need to at least be aware of what his reality entails so that I can know how to best support him and speak up in situations like this, because it's not the same for him as it is for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think just going forward, I mean, I think there's going to be more of these cases. And unfortunately the sort of like what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, the lionizing or the heroicism of, of Rittenhouse to me, that's, it's such a problematic message because I think it does tell people, 
you know, maybe Aubrey is a little bit of a cautionary tale to some of these folks. Like you can't just go vigilante and do whatever you want. Um, you know, especially with the racist undertones that there was to that, but Rittenhouse is problematic because I think it does just sort of reinforce this idea, especially if he continues to be in the public spotlight in some way in the years or months to come or whatever, that it's 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 good. It's good to be a vigilante. It's good for you to substitute your judgment for law enforcement. It's it's okay to stand your ground. All of those kind of things that we talked about. I'm really worried that we're going to see here the next year uh, a real uh, a genuine battle at some type of um, protest where people are showing up. And everybody's like, I got a right to be here with a gun and one shot goes off and everything goes to hell. I'm genuinely concerned that that's going to happen. And then how are you going to prosecute this kind of thing? Yeah. Because suddenly everybody's in self-defense mode and yeah. What do you do? Can I, can I make it maybe this is close to a closing comment? But sure, please. You said something Taylor that triggered this for me, just about talking with your friends and that as we've just talked, talking about kind of the experience of, particularly with law enforcement that black people have had. And it's just been something that has been generational and they, it's, they see it and experience in ways that we don't. I was made aware recently of how we are not as far removed from history as we tend to think we are. Did you know that Harriet Tubman and Ronald Reagan's lives overlapped? Hmm. Reagan was born before Harriet Tubman died. Wow. Just to give an idea that we tend to think of things in a really distant history because we break it down into years or decades, but in terms of just the human experience of one person to another, um, we're not that far away from really horrific times. And I, it makes sense to me that there is still a lot of um, sensitivity and recognition of it, especially amongst those who have experienced it. I think it can be easy for us to kind of draw this, build this wall between us and the past and go, this was so long ago. How can this possibly continue with the type of influence it has? Because experientially, it wasn't that long ago. Mm. You know, your grandparents and your parents tell you stories um, and then the stories continue. And I think we've seen that in both the historical context and I think the church, you got, there's this idea of like generational trauma and the sins of the fathers being visited mm-hmm. upon the children. And I think we have seen that in the country. Racism is definitely yeah. alive and well. It's a problem. It's a, it's a wound and a trauma in our country that we've never fully recognized or healed from, can't heal from until we have a full reconciliation, which we seem unwilling to do. So I think as long as that happens, this trauma is just going to keep persisting from generation to generation until there's some direct acknowledgement and real work on justice and reconciliation to happen. So with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode. It might've been a little bit of a long one, but there was a lot to unpack with these two trials. This was episode 19 of Breaking the Surface. You can follow us on social media and we will see you guys in the next episode. Bye.